Welcome to Wellness Realness with Christina Rice. I'm your host, Christina. I'm a nutritional therapy practitioner, holistic health coach, Reiki practitioner, and the creator of ChristinaRiceWellness.com, where you can find my blog, recipes, services, programs, and ebooks. In this podcast, I'll be discussing all things related to health and wellness, and I promise to always keep it very real. Remember my disclaimer, the information in this podcast is general health and nutrition advice and is not a replacement for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you'd like to submit a question or a topic for me to discuss, submit it on the podcast page at ChristinaRiceWellness.com. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a rating and a review on iTunes, and join our Facebook group, Wellness Wellness Podcast Tribe. So I think the perfect way for all of us to start off 2020 is by focusing on gut health. Gut health is the foundation of overall health. If your gut is out of balance, then this will have major downstream effects. It can affect your mood, your brain function, your weight, obviously your digestion, your immune system, your ability to recover, your athletic performance, your joints, inflammation levels in the body. It just affects everything. And this is why I love all things gut health. It's probably my favorite topic when it comes to physical health. And I emphasize it so much for a reason. And I'm really excited about today's episode because we're talking all about gut health and diving into the science of optimizing your gut. And one of the easiest ways everyone can do this to start is by taking a high quality probiotic every single day. And there are so many probiotics out there on the market. I know it can be confusing, but I would encourage you to listen to my previous podcast on probiotics, and the one that I recommend to everyone is Just Thrive Probiotic. I don't recommend going to the store. I don't care if it's Whole Foods. I don't recommend going to the store and picking a probiotic up. I recommend going online and ordering the Just Thrive because you know it is the highest quality out there and you are actually getting results. Just Thrive is a spore probiotic formulation that has four bacillus strains, and What makes this probiotic different and the best out there is that it actually survives the harsh gastric environment of the stomach and it's going to arrive 100% alive to the intestines. Studies have shown that most probiotics on the market do not survive that harsh stomach environment, so they're not even true probiotics. The strains need to arrive alive in the intestines to do the work, otherwise you're simply ingesting dead bacteria. Those bacillus endospores are like gut police that are going to arrive 100% alive to the intestines. They're going to read your microbiome and they have the ability to eliminate pathogens and toxins while also producing compounds and nutrients to help grow our good bacteria. One of the strains in Just Thrive also helps to produce the RDA level of antioxidants like alpha and beta carotene, lutein, astaxanthin, and zeaxanthin. And it also helps to produce vitamin K2, methylated B vitamins, and a full array of digestive enzymes. The strains in Just Thrive have been shown to improve the production of short-chain fatty acids, which has been shown to result in less fat storage, higher fat burn, improved insulin sensitivity, and improved satiety. The strains in Just Thrive also help modulate the immune system, helping to suppress any unfavorable immune responses like allergies and food sensitivities. 
And Just Thrive's probiotic formulation has been shown in human clinical trials to help begin healing leaky gut in as little as 30 days. Leaky gut is the root cause of so many major chronic illnesses like heart disease, diabetes, cancer, autoimmune disease, dementia, and a bunch of the different digestive diseases that we are going to talk about today. No refrigeration is needed. Just Thrive strains are so stable that they don't have to be refrigerated. Remember that any probiotics that need to be refrigerated are too sensitive to survive in the body, which is 98.6 degrees usually. So that's the sign of a good probiotic if it is shelf stable. I take this probiotic every single day. I double up when I am feeling sick and it makes the world of a difference. So many people have told me that probiotics do nothing for them and then I get them to try Just Thrive and they are blown away by the positive impact this has on their overall health. So if you are ready to try it out, just go to bit.ly slash justthrivechristina and you can use my code christina15 for 15% off. Again, that's bit.ly slash justthrivechristina and my code christina15 will get you 15% off and all that information is in the show notes. And today's podcast is... Diving into all things gut health, today I'm chatting with Dr. Norman Robillard, who is the founder of the Digestive Health Institute and a leading gut health expert. He's a microbiologist, the author of the Fast Tracked Digestion book series, and he's a publisher of the Fast Track Diet mobile app. He created the Fast Track Diet for functional gastrointestinal disorders, SIBO, and other related conditions. So if you're interested in all things gut health and gut conditions, you are going to love this podcast. A lot of people talk about low FODMAP, SCD, keto, gaps, and other gut healing protocols. So today we are going to dive into the Fast Track Diet. If you have gut issues, you are definitely going to want to check this one out. We talk about everything from acid reflux, to SIBO, to bloating, constipation, diarrhea, all things gut and digestion. And I know you're going to find this very interesting. So let's go ahead and hop into this interview with Dr. Norman Robillard. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I have been very excited to chat with you about all things digestive health. And I think you're Fast track diet is something that a lot of people might not know about um, because I feel like things like low FODMAP are really popular, Um, but I've been looking into the diet recently and I feel like it's really interesting. But before we dive into all that, I would love for you to introduce yourself to my audience and tell them a little bit about what you do. Sure. Uh, My name is uh, Norman Robolat. I'm a microbiologist. trained at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, did some postdoctoral work at Tufts in Boston. And I took a job in pharmaceutical biotech and spent ended up spending 20 years working in a couple of different companies and um, developing uh, drugs, but also spending a lot of time on microbiology. I helped develop uh, Cipro, the antibiotic. So I worked a lot on antibiotics, even though I recommend most people don't take them whenever possible um, because they're lifesavers, but they can really you know, beat up the gut. So, um, you know, I, things were cruising along pretty well for me in, in that field. Um, what changed was when I uh, had developed my own gastrointestinal issue, chronic acid reflux in my oh, maybe mid-30s or so. And I honestly had no idea what caused it. And 
never thought about bacteria in the gut, and neither did any, anyone else. Um, it was long thought to be just a dysfunctional sphincter muscle on top of the stomach. And when that thing was weakened or relaxing or loosened up, the people would have reflux. And that theory was some 60 years old. Nobody ever thought of it differently. Nobody challenged it. And I wouldn't have either except for one thing. Um, when I was in the midst of this condition, you know, terrible acid reflux, even waking up in the middle of the night, aspirating it into my lungs, I mean, feeling pretty miserable. Um, and the medicines weren't, weren't really much help. I just happened to go on a low carbohydrate diet. And, um, you know, I was reading Protein Power by Mike and Mary Dan Eads, And I was going kind of, you know, in the range of keto, really low carb. And my acid reflux dramatically improved. You know, I had gone on the diet with my son. We had bought a treadmill. We we're going to lose a couple of pounds. Uh, but I stopped even thinking about weight loss because just in a matter of days, my reflux was so much improved. But being, you know, the scientist and, and, and a curious person at heart, I just had to really try to understand what is going on here. Proteins, fats, and carbs, those are the three food groups. I take out most of one, carbs, and my reflux goes away. What is up with that? And other people knew about that. Uh, Mike and Mary Denise had written about it in Protein Power. For the patients who'd put them on a low carb and noticed their reflux improved. Lots of people were saying that. So people, other people knew about that, but nobody knew why. And so I got really curious about why. And that's where being a microbiologist really helped me because I decided to trace these three food groups through the digestive process, see if I could learn something. And it was probably the second day I was looking into this that all of a sudden it hit me. If When I was having reflux and consuming a lot of carbohydrates, perhaps now that I'm 35, my digestion wasn't working as well as it was when I was 18. And some of these carbs were, uh, too many of them were escaping digestion and absorption. And I knew immediately I had this theory just came into my mind with such clarity. I had worked with a lot of gut bacteria, E. coli, uh, strains of uh, Bacteroidetes, Bacteroides fragilis, so forth. I'd done a lot of work in the lab on these microbes. And I knew that intestinal microbes, for the most part, were very sacrolytic. They love sugar and carbohydrates. It's a simple uh, and powerful fuel source for them. And they also produce a lot of gas. And this thought just came into my mind with such clarity that here's what was happening. I was consuming more carbs than I was digesting. I was feeding blooms of gas-producing bacteria in my intestines. That gas pressure was building up working its way, whether it started in the large intestine or the small intestine, I didn't even really know or think about it at the time, but too much bacteria, too much gas. Eventually, that gas was working its way into the stump, stomach. And when it was building up this intragastric pressure in the stomach, eventually it was pushing the lower esophageal sphincter open, like dropping a Mentos candy in, into a Coke. Um, that's an analogy I use. And so it was that, that simple um, but the rest of the year was really about, I wanted to get this idea out there about, you know, I had this new idea about what was underlying acid reflux. So I wanted to write this theory up. So I, I before we get on the call, I was telling you, I, I lived in Thousand Oaks. I was working at Amgen at the time. Uh, my job was pretty busy, but I was writing this book late at night, you know, one and two in the morning and trying to knock this book out. So it's, if anybody reads the original uh, theory, it's called Heartburn Cured. 
this old self-published book. It's filled with typos. You, you'll read the reviews online. Um, but I just wrote it late at night. I wanted to just get this idea out there because it was so much evidence that was supporting this new way of looking at this compared to this antiquated idea about sphincter dysfunction. So um, as I got more involved with that, you know, that led to, well, how can I make this diet better? And then I wrote a couple of other books and then I realized IBS was a very similar condition and other functional GI issues. So um, yeah, so I've written a couple more um, books with with fewer typos on on the subject, and and I founded the Digestive Health Institute. So basically, this is what I do now. I I consult with people as a consulting microbiologist. Uh, I do podcasts like this. I do lectures. I speak to doctors. I you know I I just focus on these issues full time now. Yeah. So so you had this idea that it was because you're feeding bacteria in your gut, and did you ever find out what bacteria it was? Did you do a stool test or? Mm. Well, so first of all, um, since I did that original work and, and written a few books on it, um, you know, research in this area continues to um, expand. Um, believe it or not, the first, you know, when I first wrote this book, I wasn't even thinking about SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. I was just thinking about excessive fermentation somewhere in the intestines. I didn't know where, but I knew it was happening, a lot of it, and all this gas pressure. Um, but at the same time, other people were working on SIBO, but the, the detection of SIBO actually goes back to 1949, a guy named Frazier. Um, he was a, an MD studying malabsorption, and he was the first one that I'm aware of, at least, to document SIBO as bacteria from the large intestine growing in the small intestine and competing with the host, with us, for nutrients. So it was amazing clarity back in 1949. And in 1950, there was a uh, paper published on irritable bowel syndrome, and they thought it was a mental disorder, that some people you know, having uh, psychological issues. So there was a 50-year gap for IBS and SIBO to become reconnected in the late uh, 1900s and, and early 2000s. Um, so that's what was going on in terms of do I know what bacteria um, – are overgrowing for acid reflux. I don't specifically, although we are in a study with uh, Dr. John Pandolfino's group out in Chicago at the Feinberg School of Medicine. 90 people with acid reflux are going off their proton pump inhibitors and they're going to get on either the fast track diet, a control diet, or uh, like a placebo diet or, or one other diet. And so in that study, we are doing some breath testing. Mm -hmm. So we will get some hydrogen and methane data back from people before they go on the diet and afterwards. Uh, so that will be interesting. But in terms of what the individual organisms are, um, I don't know specifically for reflux. But when you look at SIBO and IBS studies, um, there is a lot of work going on. Um, typically, uh, and I suppose just for people that don't talk a lot about intestinal bacteria, I mean, let's just a quick primer on it. We all have a lot of bacteria in our intestines, right? Mostly in our large bowel, a hundred trillion bacteria in our large bowel. And they're very diverse, over a thousand species. Um, they have 3 million genes or something like that. Most of those genes are for processing complex carbohydrates. So why are they there? Well, there's an evolutionary advantage for all animals including us that have these bacteria, that they break down these complex carbohydrates, produce fats, and those fats we can digest and they nourish us. So 
foods we can't digest, some of these complex fibers, you know, a certain amount of the resistant starch and other things we consume, we can't break it down, they can. So there is a real survival advantage. That's why these bacteria are there. There's much fewer bacteria in the small intestine, right? And they're mostly what they call gram-positive aerobic bacteria like staph and strep. Again, very healthy situation, but not too many of them. Um, what happens with SIBO is uh, those bacteria can overgrow, but also anaerobic gram-negative bacteria, you know, that can't tolerate oxygen, they start to move up into the small intestine and proliferate. And so then you have this mix of all of these bacteria, some of which shouldn't be there. All of them are in uh, much higher numbers over, say, uh, 10,000 or 100,000 cells per mil. And they start impacting digestion, right? Impacting the villi and the microvilli that we need to absorb our nutrients, um, breaking down the enzymes released at the tips of these microvilli. So it turns into a big kind of mess. So I don't know what the specific organisms are in reflux, but I do think there is this connection with SIBO. And also something, an idea, a term that I coined some years ago that people are talking more about now, LIBO, an, an overgrowth of bacteria even in the early part of the large bowel. And there's some data supporting that. Interesting. So, yeah. Okay, so I want to dive more into SIBO in a second, but I want to go back to reflux specifically um, because like <clears throat> SIBO or a bacterial overgrowth isn't the only potential cause of reflux, correct? Well, so that's an open question, right? And I think probably for acid reflux and even for irritable bowel syndrome, um, that SIBO is not the only cause. And here's, here's why. Um, <clears throat> people that have acid reflux, um, half of them have IBS and half of the people with IBS have acid reflux. So there's a huge overlap. And it makes sense to me because I think there's a similar like etiology behind these conditions. Uh, most of the work on this has been done with IBS, right? Because I just came up with this theory. Okay, it was a while ago and I wrote about it, but it still takes a while to get these studies through and get other people studying it so we can really learn more about it. But there are a lot of studies on IBS and I think the two are so related that we can, we can look at those and learn something. And the connection between SIBO and IBS is quite strong. Um, Dr. Mark Pementel's group out just north of you and at Cedar sinai they've done a lot of work on this and others, some in the UK. Uh, and they've shown pretty conclusively with the breath testing and so forth, and even some, uh, some more invasive, you know, sampling the small intestine for bacteria. They've shown pretty conclusively that there seems to be this overgrowth in the small intestine with a lot of people that have IBS. However, there's um, a couple of uh, studies that are out maybe four years ago using smart pill technology that measures the pH of the stomach and the small intestine and large intestine using these smart pills that just kind of float through your digestive tract and they radio out the pH. So how acidic is the environment constantly? And they've figured out a way to kind of track the smart pill exactly where it was on the body. They look at it. It's in the stomach now. It's in the small intestine. Ah, there's the ileocecal valve, and now it's in the large bowel. And so they can follow where it is, and so they can record the pH. And they looked at, I don't know, 30 or 40 people with IBS and found that, and these were two different studies uh, that looked at this and found that the um, 
people with IBS have more acidity in the early part of the large bowel, the cecum and, and the ascending colon, suggesting there's more bacterial growth because as the bacteria grow and in the early part of the digestive tract, they ferment these carbs, they produce short chain fatty acids, which are acids. And so that's why it's becoming acidic, more bacteria fermenting carbs and growing. So they're saying, well, look what's going on here. There's all of this bacteria growing in the cecum past the small intestine and in the ascending colon, whereas the pH changes in the small intestine, they didn't see any. And so they were saying, well, forget about SIBO. It looks like it's all about what you might call kind of a LIBO reaction. Um, however, even with SIBO, let's say you're supposed to have less than 100,000 bacteria per mil there, and then you have 10,000 or 100,000, it's still so much less than 100 trillion that you might not see those pH changes in the small intestine. So this is where I stand on this issue right now. I think both SIBO and what you might call LIBO are both real phenomenon, and they may go together. So you get this overgrowth in the early part of the large bowel, which can provide this gas pressure and perhaps push the bacteria back into the small intestine, leading to SIBO. So I really think that's what's going on, kind of a mixture of SIBO and, and LIBO in IBS and almost certainly in reflux as well. What about just like the low stomach acid component though? Because small intestinal bacterial overgrowth can be caused by low stomach acid as, I mean, I know for me, I've had plenty of clients where we just increase our stomach acid, reflux mm. goes away. Yeah. So yeah. I feel like that is also potential, you know, because I feel like that's more of a root cause for both. Yeah, very good question. So there is this subset of people, and, and you and some of the people you've had good luck with, you know, giving them betaine, um, maybe in this group that do have low stomach acid. Um, when it comes to acid reflux, I, I've looked at this question, and I, I wrote, there's a three or four part um, blog article on digestivehealthinstitute.org on acid reflux, and one of those parts talks specifically about stomach acid. And what I found from looking at a number of studies was that most people with reflux actually have normal stomach acid. But there is this subset that may have low stomach acid and be suffering from what you would call non-acid reflux. So I agree with you. I think it's real in a subset of people. Now, how do you know if you're one of those people, right? Um, it's not always easy to get this Heidelberg acid test. Again, they use a smart pill, but they dangle it from a string down your uh, esophagus and dangle it into your stomach, and they can tell over time if you're making enough stomach acid or not. And then they even challenge you by giving you little drinks of uh, bicarbonate, which raises the pH, and then they see how quickly your stomach can reacidify. So the Heidelberg acid test is just a fantastic way to just know. I do or don't have stomach acid, and my stomach is able to produce it well when it needs to or not. So that's the gold standard. Um, it's not widely available. So a good alternative, I think, you know, one basic alternative some people try is just, okay, take some betaine, see how you feel. That's another way. Um, what I find is good when I work with people, and I do this not only for low stomach acid, but all of these different potential causes of SIBO. Um, and there's many, many of these. They all have kind of a, a defined set of risk factors, symptoms, sometimes a simple test to rule them out. So you can kind of work through all these. But let's just focus on the, on the low acid one. Here's the major risk factors for having low stomach acid. One is taking any kind of acid-reducing medicine. 
PPIs, H2 blockers, even Tums and antacids. Um, that's what they do. They get rid of the stomach acids. If you're taking those, you know at least during the half-life of the drug or taking the antacids, your stomach acid's gone. That's what they do. That's the first one. Um, and getting off those is really important. Uh, the second one is the prolonged infection with Helicobacter pylori, this bacteria, H. pylori, that anchors in the gut, uh, and then it kind of burrows through the mucus, and it, it anchors right on the on the lining of the stomach. And over time, it can cause atrophic gastritis, literally damages the lining of the stomach. And it can do that in two different areas. One area will affect the hormones that control stomach acid, and you can end up having way too much stomach acid, and you end up getting ulcers. It can also um, damage the cells around the, um, the uh, cells that produce uh, stomach acid. And then when it does that, th then you will have the inability to produce adequate amounts of stomach acid. So H. pylori, you, it's easy to get tested. There's three or four ways of, of doing it. Know if you have, and if you do have it, you need to get treated either with a triple therapy with antibiotics and a PPI, as much as I hate all of those, they're good for that. And there are some herbal approaches as well. Um, what else? Abuse of non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, abuse of alcohol, too much of either of those can, can give you gastritis. Um, and then also there's an autoimmune version of um, atrophic gastritis. And again, it targets the same type of cells we were talking about with H. pylori, and that's these parietal cells that produce the acid. Your own immune system can attack those, and, and once again, you'll develop, you can have low stomach acid as a result. So working through those risk factors with people, I think is a very good way to determine for sure whether you have it or not. You don't have to guess, even if you can't get the Heidelberg test. Okay. I would love for you to talk a little bit more about PPIs and also the process of getting off of them because I get questions about this. Um, do people need to wean off? Can they just go off or you know what, what would that look like? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Many people can, um, uh, but some people, there is this uh, idea of rebound symptoms. Sometimes people call it rebound uh, acidity. Um, but I mean, first of all, it is important to get up, get off because they're like removing a stomach acid in a variety of ways. You do need that for digestion, not only to break down proteins, but also for just regulation of the rest of the digestive process. So you really do um, need to get off of those. And, and they do cause long-term, there are a lot of uh, negative health consequences of being on PPIs. We probably don't have to go through them. There's lots of reviews on it. I did want to comment on one recent study that came out, uh, and they looked at thousands of people, older people taking PPIs, and basically their conclusion was other than an, an increased risk for GI infections, they said all of these other things, they don't seem to be a problem. And so they were saying that they're safe and effective and you don't have to worry about it. But I just wanted to point out that study was only three years. And most of these long-term consequences, whether it's malabsorbing minerals or nutrients, uh, whether it's the risk of pneumonia um, and uh, C. diff and all of these different things, kidney issues, it takes many years for that to occur. So the study was only three years. So most people agree it's just best to be off of these things if you possibly can. In terms of getting off of them, when I consult with people, um, usually I'll make diet and behavioral changes first, 
kind of set the stage for getting off these. And then the next visit, which might be three or four weeks later, we'll um, talk about how to a weaning strategy for getting off of these um, PPIs or H2 blockers. Um, and by the way, as a consulting microbiologist, people sign a consent form to work with me. And then my recommendations, they can take to your doctor, mm-hmm. to their doctor. So I'm not personally saying you need to get off these, forget what your doctor says, listen to me. I don't, I, would, I wouldn't do that outside of my lane, but I will give an extensive five-page write-up about why I think it's a good idea, and they can take my notes um, to their doctor if these have been prescribed by their doctor. Um, and it's basically proposing a, a weaning strategy where you cut down on the doses, and you might use, um, when you're cutting down on PPIs, you might use an H2 blocker like Zantac, and then when you're getting off that, you might use antacids, so you, you're gradually getting off them. Some people can just stop them. Um, but if if it's a problem, a gradual process is, um, you know, makes more sense. Okay, perfect. Thank you for clearing that up. Um, let's talk a little bit more about SIBO. So you described what it was. Um, maybe we can get into some causes of SIBO. Sure, and and there's a whole variety of things that can that can cause it. Um, some of the more famous ones are, we talked about low stomach acid, right? That could be a factor. Um, any kind of uh, motility problem. Um, yeah, and we talked about the drugs, but even like immune deficiencies, um, you know, people, we know people with HIV have problems with SIBO. Um, even people, you know, if you have low um, secreted immunoglobulin A, I mean, there's tons of that normally produced in the gut and it helps regulate these populations of bacteria. So I think that's um, an important one. Any kind of GI infection, um, you know, uh, food poisoning and so forth. Um, I mean, the list just goes um, on and on. Uh, other con- other conditions that impact your ability to properly digest foods, so celiac and Crohn's, uh, scleroderma, anything that pr- leads to scarring in the intestine. So um, it's just a very long list of things that can feed into this is either the underlying or at least a contributing cause. And so you do have to work through those um, and, and working with clients to, to see which of these can we just get rid of? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. You were tested for celiac disease. Okay. That's gone. Um, so, oh, we know now you don't have low stomach acid. So we can just kind of work through them. And then we want to get that handful of things. Oh, okay. Well, wait a minute. You have um, hypothyroidism. Okay. What's going on with that? Oh, and it turns out you have antibodies. Uh, antithyroid antibodies. And so you have Hashimoto's. Oh, that's interesting. Now that puts you in a higher risk category for having these antibodies to parietal cells and the low stomach acid. So you're you're putting the puzzle pieces together, but mostly you're trying to take things off the table that pieces that don't even belong to that puzzle. Okay. So I want to talk more about um, addressing SIBO and treatment, and maybe you can start by your thoughts on antibiotics for SIBO? Sure. And, you know, there may be times when, when antibiotics would be useful. People tried everything else, or they have a really terrible case, or they, the cause can't be addressed, and they're really having the more significant symptoms of SIBO more than just a little bloating or a little altered bowel habits. Maybe they're losing weight, uh, they have bruising and night blind, some of the more serious ramifications. There is a place, I think, for antibiotics in something like rifaximin that's not systemically absorbed, um, maybe one of the more least invasive antibiotics to try, and it is approved for IBSD. Um, so there's some options there. What 
bothers me is people like a quick fix, right? And they don't want to change the diet. And so if they can take a pill or a drug or an antibiotic, a lot of people are willing to take the risk and just do it. And especially if the doctor says do it. I'm like, oh, okay, green light. But I do have a lot of people come to me that are having all kinds of problems after being through some of these drug antibiotic protocols. Uh, they, they're even more messed up. Um, so my idea is that first, diet and behaviors, right? This, this kind of three parts to the fast track diet. And, and this is what we focus on in my consultation program as well. Diet, reducing these fermentable carbs, and we can talk about what those are later and how you measure those. Um, really modifying your behavior and practices to kind of optimize your digestion. And that may include um, some dietary supplements, digestive enzymes, things like that, but very holistic approach. And then also this real honest, deep dive into these underlying causes. And if you identify one or two that are, that are um, going on in your case, addressing them. Those I think should come first before any drugs and antibiotics. Um, and so for antibiotics, there's other things too. I mean, antibiotics can cause IBS. They can lead to the problem in the first place. Um, they are as much as they can be lifesavers, right? And I worked on the development of Cipro. It saved a lot of lives but uh, it's not always good to your Achilles tendon. Uh, it is a gut wrecker. It can really mess up your GI. Um, and it takes a long time for that to kind of bounce back. And it may not even fully bounce back just in kind of a functional way. So it messes with your gut. You do have this issue of antibiotic resistance, which is a problem not only for the person taking the antibiotic, for everybody, all of us. We're running out of antibiotics to treat serious infections. And the more we abuse them for functional issues that we may not need them for, um, the, the, we shorten the lifespan and usefulness of that, of that drug. And of course, the side effects and you can have allergic reactions to antibiotics. So I'm just not a fan of antibiotics for these functional GI issues um, in most instances, at least until you've tried some of the other things. Okay. I, before we dive into diet, can we talk about some of, when you're talking about behavioral changes, um, like what, what kind of suggestions do you have there? Sure. Yeah, well, um, some of those might not make perfect sense until we talk about, about the diet, but we can, we can take a stab at it anyway. Um, you want to do whatever you can to optimize your digestion so that the foods you're consuming, not only carbohydrates, they're the big culprit, and the five that I target in the book in particular, you want to make sure you're optimizing the digestion of those as much as you can. But also fats and proteins. You know, you don't want to be have a lot of malabsorption going on. So simple things that people know about some of these. They might not know why or maybe their grandmother told them, but eating really slowly and chewing well. Some people can just do that and get better. It's amazing. And there's a lot of reasons for that. You know, you break down the food into smaller pieces so it's easier for the rest of the steps, churning it up in the stomach, um, all of the steps in secondary digestion in, in the small intestine. Um, but also, the, that your mouth is where starch digestion begins, the amylase enzyme in your saliva. Some people have many gene copy numbers for, for salivary amylase. It's an evolutionary thing. Maybe they, their ancestors evolved closer to the equator where more starch was consumed. They have many gene copies copy numbers, they have high amounts of amylase, they can have up to 60% of their saliva is amylase enzyme. And they do very well with starch. 
for some reason, they even seem to do better with blood sugar in re relation to starch. So they might be kind of evolved more as being able to process starch. Other people have very few gene copies, not much amylase. But by eating slowly and chewing well, you give the amylase you do have more time to begin that breakdown of starch. So that's one. Um, yes, how you're selecting the foods you consume. So, um, and we can get into later why you would pick like a jasmine rice over a basmati rice because of the amount of resistant starch. It's more like a fiber. Um, some people have luck with peeling vegetables and cooking vegetables. They will be a little bit easier to digest. Um, you do want to consume at least some uncooked and raw um, veggies to help continue to repopulate your gut. But cooking, peeling will help. Um, if you're having digestive trouble, you probably don't want to eat leftover starches <clears throat> because this as the starch starts to crystallize, it forms more of a resistant type of starch, uh, especially with um, amylose starches, two species of starch, amylose, hard to digest to begin with, but also more susceptible to this crystallization and amylopectin, the easier to digest starch and less susceptible to the crystallization. So you don't want to eat leftover starches. And if you do warm them up really well to try to regelatinize some of that starches. Um, so that, you know, the list goes on, but the, there's a lot of things you can do just in terms of your behavior. Okay. So making sure to chew your food. A lot of people just yep. spill it. Um, what I do it after 15 years of doing this myself for my own yeah. reflux. Um, and I never have reflux unless I really, you know, go off the rails. Um, but I do it myself. It's second nature. If I'm out at a restaurant and I'm having a little rice and I'm not completely sure on the type, and even if it is jasmine or sushi rice, which are easy to digest, uh, it's just second nature to eat really slowly and chew really well. Plus, it's enjoyable anyway like that. But it's that's where you want to get these behaviors to where you just don't have to think about it anymore. Mm -hmm. So let's move into the diet then. So tell me about like the why behind the fast track diet. Sure. Um, as I mentioned, when I first um, got into this area, it was because I just simply realized that low carb, very low carbohydrate diets helped my reflux tremendously. And so that was all I knew. Um, and then I came up with this theory. Um, it was only when I was having discussions with the author of Protein Power, who I had become friends with because he had written about it. I had this new theory. So he agreed to read my book and give me some notes. Um, but he questioned this just sitting around with him having a glass of wine. He said, you know, which carbs are worse? It's that simple. He said, you know, some carbs, glucose are easy to digest and absorb. Is that a problem? And I hadn't really thought that much about it. And I'm like, you know, you have a point. And so I really started looking at the individual species of carbohydrate, which ones were worse. You know, Mike had a good question. And I came up with this list that the ones that are hardest to digest and most likely to be malabsorbed and most likely to drive symptoms are fructose. And it's well known fructose is hard to digest and absorb. Half of the people on the planet, you know, malabsorb a lot of the fructose they consume. Lactose, right? All the people with lactose intolerance. Resistant starch was one not a lot of people think about. Even on the FODMAP diet, they don't include limits on resistant starch. Fiber is another one. Again, the FODMAP group, they feel like you need more fiber, but there's a lot of evidence 
Um, the resistant starch and fiber can be part of the problem for people too. And then sugar alcohols. Um, and then also some short uh, length polymers of fructose, polymers of galactose, because they're technically more like a dietary fiber anyway. So I had this handful, basically five groups. And so to answer Mike's question, you know, here they are, these five. But what do you do with that information? What? You know, I can tell people, oh, just avoid these five. And they'll be like, okay, well, um, this morning I'm having bananas and pancakes. How many of these five are in that? I don't know. You know, it's a research project. So I was stumped with that. And that was really the reason it took me so long to get my second two books out because I was stuck there. I had, I had these five. In fact, they agreed with some of the other experts in textbooks, the textbook of primary and acute care medicine in their chapter on intestinal gases, right? So most doctors that studied with this, they should know, um, same five, lactose, fructose, resistant starch, fiber, and sugar alcohols, textbook of primary care, acute medicine, acute and primary medicine. The NICE guidelines, the European uh, NICE guidelines, and they use Cochrane reviews and all these came up with the same five. So this was good agreement in some academic circles that I had the right five here. In fact, I didn't even know about those sources when I first came up with this, but there's good agreement. But how? How do you measure this in foods that people eat? And I just struggled with that for two years uh, until it finally dawned on me I could use the glycemic index value. And I had thought about this for maybe three or four or five months. There must be some way to use it because that, the glycemic index is a measure of how quickly carbohydrates from any food enter your bloodstream compared to the gold standard of 100% absorption, glucose. And so by testing these, all these foods in 10 people against you know, the area under the curve for these foods versus the area under the curve of blood sugar for glucose, they can tell how quickly carbs from these foods go into the bloodstream. And so if they go in just as well as glucose, the glycemic index is 100. If they go in half as well as glucose, the glycemic index is 50. And so I don't know why it took me so long to figure this out because now it seems pretty simple. What I finally realized is I said, I don't really care about carbs in the bloodstream for the moment. You don't want to get diabetes from eating too many high carb foods and high GI foods. But what I really care about is the carbohydrates that are getting left behind that are absorbing more slowly than glucose. And so I finally realized I could change the equation around so that instead of measuring carbs in entering the bloodstream relative to glucose, carbs staying behind relative to glucose. And I had to modify it slightly to add fiber and sugar alcohols because those are not digested and absorbed and they're not part of the glycemic index equation. So that is the equation and it's called the fermentation potential or FP. And so with the, we came up with this fast track diet mobile app a few years ago and we've just done a major um, overhaul on it. And that has a thousand foods in it now that all have this FP value. So the calculation's done, you just bring up the food and you can see what it is. And when you make your meals and add these different foods um, from the tables and, and you say, I'm gonna have a half a cup of this or I'm gonna have three quarters of a cup, it will automatically adjust the FP points for those servings 
and the total for the meal, and it will track it versus your symptoms, which you can also enter. And so at the end of the month or the end of the week, you can see, here's my FP points going up and down. Here's my symptoms going up and down. And so you can make some, some changes to your diet. But that's um, in a nutshell how it works. So you can do the calculation. You can plug it into an Excel. You can go on digestivehealthinstitute.org. There's a free calculator on there. Uh, the mobile app also has a calculator. Um, or you can just look up the foods. Okay. Yeah. So this is so interesting to me. So is there like typically uh, an, an FP number that you say stay below for people with SIBO? Mm. <laughs> You're asking some good questions. Here. Um, there, there is, there was, and there is again. And, and here's why. Um, when, when I first wrote the fast-tracked digestion books, there's one on IBS, there's one on heartburn, and first came out with this mobile app. I was thinking maybe between 25 points a day and 45 points per day. If, you have, if you're much better and your symptoms have gone away, maybe 45 or more of these points. And by the way, a point is one gram of fermentable material, just for the, for the science geeks out there. But if you really have a lot of symptoms, oh, you better stay closer to the 25 points. And that worked pretty good for a lot of people with IBS and acid reflux. But here's what happened. We have a Facebook group, the Fast Track Diet official Facebook group, which people should come and join. Um, we've got about almost 10,000 members now. Um, so we get people not only with acid reflux and IBS and the many, many more SIBO-linked or functional GI disorders which benefit from this type of approach. All these people on our site, including people with a, a real challenging form of acid reflux called laryngopharyngeal reflux. Reflux gets up into your throat, your vocal cords, your station tubes, you can breathe it into your lungs. It, you get a very subtle but persistent irritation. You feel like there's a lump in your throat, you have a sore throat. It's a result of continued reflux, but it's very, very challenging to treat. And so there were people with LPL, lots of them on our, on our Facebook group. And they, first of all, didn't get better immediately. I've been on it a week. I still have this sore throat, lump in my throat. What's going on? Why doesn't this work? And, but some people started to speak up and say, well, you know what? I had to do it for two weeks or some people a month, some people as much as four months. And they also started telling us, and also I had to cut the points further to 15 points a day to get better. And so we started listening to them. And so we've been updating the points. In fact, this clinical study I mentioned up in Chicago, we're in, we, when we were drafting the protocol, we actually reduced the points a little bit for these acid reflux people based on the feedback we're getting from people that are actually using the diet. So, um, you know, I consider all these tables, the book, all of everything we work on, I really consider it kind of a living document, a living database. And we try to improve it as we get feedback from people and from studies. Yeah, so, so now you're kind of saying like 25. Well, so that's what I was saying. And now I'm saying for really troublesome symptoms, what people with those situations are telling us is sometimes even lower is good. Okay. okay. Yeah. So, can you give some examples of foods that are low in FP points? Oh, sure. There's many. Well, we had talked about um, jasmine rice, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, some people actually get into trouble with jasmine rice because 
um, there's almost no points in jasmine rice. When you just because it has a glycemic index, it's almost as high as glucose. In some studies, it's higher. Um, but now we've looked at several studies, so we've kind of have using a glycemic index of 94. But still, the higher the glycemic index, the lower the FP. So it's still really low. So um, one half cup of jasmine rice is really kind of zero points. Um, but you could almost say a half a cup or a cup might be one point or somewhere around that's very low. Whereas basmati or Uncle Ben's rice, those may be uh, 10 points for a half a cup. So 10 times more or 10 grams of fermentable material. Um, and since 30 grams of fermentable material can allow your bacteria to make your bacteria in your gut to make 10 liters of gas, right? 10 grams of fermentable material is one third that amount. So you would still, in your intestines, your bacteria could still make 3.3 liters of hydrogen gas just from that one half cup of Uncle Ben's rice or basmati rice. So the jasmine rice or the sushi rice are much lower, you know, one point or so for half a cup. So some people see that and like, well, I can, I guess I can eat three cups then. And so my response generally is, first of all, we don't know that everybody digests rice, even jasmine rice, even the easier to digest rice, as, as well as the people in the studies to determine the glycemic index that the FP is based on, right? These are healthy, normal people. Us people with GI issues might not digest it quite as well. So use a little bit of caution. Stick to, we recommend like half cup servings. And for a couple of reasons. First of all, we don't know how well you, you and your own digestion will work. So test the waters carefully. Uh, maybe three quarters cup if you're a larger person or you've been used to it for a while and you have no symptoms. Um, but even though it's low FP, with the starches, use a little bit of uh, um, caution. Same with like there's different potatoes and some are easier. Like a red potato is only a couple of grams of fermentable material. It's small red potatoes. Um, but like a half cup of French fries would be um, a lot more. Again, like 10 grams. So, um, use your, your better judgment. And then the other thing is with these starchy carbs is you don't want to keep raising your blood sugar too much and having an insulin response. You know, you don't want to get into uh, diabetes, prediabetes. So over the years, you should watch your carbs just as a general rule of health. A lot of us never knew this when we we're young and we just ate carbs with wild abandon. But now I know um, I'm more careful about my carbs, not only for, for GI health, but also just for um, cardiovascular health. Yeah. So could you maybe give it like, I don't know, like five to 10 foods that are like low in, in points? Sure. Yeah. Um, so when you talk about um, fruits, right, a little bit of cantaloupe is pretty low FP um, compared to um, like a half a banana might be eight to 10 depending on if it's fully ripened, it's going to be more like eight. If it's a green banana, it might be more like 10, more resistant starch. Um, watermelon tends to be low. And, and I've had a lot of feedback. People say, well, does, aren't there FODMAPs in watermelon? Yes, there are. Some of the, you know, some fructose in watermelon and so forth. So you can't go too crazy on it. But don't forget, the FP is based on the glycemic index and the nutritional facts. I can't decide what the FP is. It's a calculation. Mm -hmm. um, so, Stick to the serving sizes, see how you feel. Um, and so th the fact that some of these foods contain some FODMAPs, that's okay. It's still kind of baked into this FP calculation. Um, so that's the, what, what other categories? Uh, bread, um, right? 
a lot of the breads are really high, seven grain bread. You know, there's tons of breads that have a lot of fiber and resistant such, and they're really high. Um, but Middle Eastern flatbread is a little bit lower. Um, I make cloud bread, which isn't really bread, but it tastes like it for me. And I've, I've gotten good at making it. And so, I, I mean, I have peanut butter and uh, uh, sugar-free jelly sandwiches with it. I have uh, ham and cheese. I have grilled cheese. Um, I love it, but it's just made with eggs and sour cream. So it's not really a bread. Um, what, are, what, what? Can we, can we talk about like the categories I'm interested in are vegetables and like nuts and seeds. Sure. Um, well, good because nuts and seeds in general, um, are lower and they're, they're lower. Any foods that are lower carb are going in general going to be lower FP. And so nuts and seeds are a lower carb. And so they're lower. Um, but they do have a little bit of fiber and resistant starch. So I think for, um, a small handful of nuts or seeds, you're talking about somewhere in the neighborhood of five, four or five FP points. Not too terrible, but I wouldn't just mm-hmm. keep eating it, eating it, eating it, because you will build up this um, fermentation burden. Um, what was the other one? Vegetables, right? Yeah. Um, most vegetables are actually fairly low in carbohydrates. Um, we have an organic garden, and we grow a lot of low vegetable, uh, low carb, and low FP vegetables. So we grow tons of herbs and greens and um, kale and lettuce, and basil, and dill, and all of these different herbs and greens, they're super low. And so you can have quite a few of those, and it's still only going to amount to one or two points, not too much points. Um, So those are really good. Um, Eggplant is relatively low. Um, You know, uh, a cup of eggplant might be five or six. You have a half a cup, it's going to be low. Um, again, you know, to, to, to know, you can just look it up in the app and there's voice recognition too. So you can look them up pretty fast in the grocery store. Um, tomatoes, it turns out are not terribly high. A lot of people think tomatoes are horrible for reflux. Um, but I think if they're fully ripened, so they're sweet, but the sugars are a little easy to digest than maybe the starches before, before it's ripened. And also when a tomato is fully ripe, ripened, most of the lectins in the skin go away. So I, I have good luck with fresh, fully vine-ripened tomatoes. Um, and the FP is, I don't know, for a third of a tomato, maybe it's um, two or three, something like that. Not, not too bad. So would you ever have people combine this with low FODMAP? Because I can imagine, like, I think about things like cauliflower um, that I know a lot of people are, like with, you know, SIBO react to, and yes. that's probably has low FP, you know? So yes. <laughs> do you use a combination or like, what do you suggest with that? We, people that uh, either I work with or I, I see on the Facebook page, they combine all kinds of things with all kinds of things, including different diets. So I see this all the time. Um, It's easier to try one diet at a time because then you're looking through a single lens, what somebody figured out and you can tell if it worked or not. If it doesn't work, try something different. Mm -hmm. That's my preferred um, way and the advice I would give to people, but um, people are going to do what they're going to do. Um, When it comes to FODMAP, um, there's a, there's a lot of overlap between the approaches, but again, resistance such and fiber won't be specifically called out and limited in FODMAP, but it is in the fast track diet. 
And when you look at some foods that have um, FODMAPs in them, you, you do want to think about the amount. So the FODMAP diet is not really a fully quantitative diet right now, because a lot of times they know, okay, there were some studies that some of these specific types of FODMAPs in these foods, and so eat less or avoid them. But they're gradually moving in the direction of a little bit more of a quantitative approach. But again, to show you the difficulty when you don't have something like the glycemic index, you have to do studies on all of these things. So I've looked at some of those studies, and um, I've looked at cauliflower was in one of the papers I read and, and some other ones. Um, and it does have some FODMAP, but actually pretty small amounts, which makes sense because cauliflower is a really low-carb vegetable. So if you are worried about FODMAPs in particular, and, and because the, the FP calculation shows that, that um, uh, cauliflower is very low, low-carb vegetable, so is broccoli. Um, but you can always just not eat too much and see how you do. I personally feel like I could eat cauliflower and broccoli, tons of it without any problem at all um, for my own, my own reflux issue. Yes. So I guess my question is also, it seems like it's basically just leading people to a ketogenic diet. Well, no, not at all. I mean, look at some of the examples we've talked about. Um, bread, we've talked about, um, uh, we talked about rice and potatoes. That's not keto. That's not low carb. Um, there's lots of other things. Sprouted grains um, are something that are low FP. We haven't talked about those. Those are That's a new class that's in the updated uh, mobile app. Uh, sprouted grains, sprouted legumes, very, very much lower than regular legumes. So um, there's an option there. Um, Rice-based pasta is a lot lower than a wheat-based pasta. Uh, some options there. So it's not a ketogenic diet by any means at face value, because mm-hmm. you do have these options to consume more carbs. I personally like being on a lower carb diet myself um, for weight control and just general health. I, I really do. Uh, I think it's the healthiest personally. Um, but for athletes, um, construction workers, people that tolerate more carbs, I think these options are going to um, help people give them an opportunity to, to have a few more carbs. But even in for these high-carb foods, you'll see in the app and in the book, we tend to stick to lower serving sizes. We are more conscious about kind of raising your blood sugar and, and having too much. To get back to your question about keto, I do think the keto diet, um, you know, you could throw the carnivore diet in there too. You could throw intermittent and prolonged fasting in there. I think those diets fall into a whole range of potential troubleshooting modes. And so when I work with people and in my book and some of the troubleshooting sections, I do talk about that. Uh, if they're still having a problem, maybe just lowering all carbs. We're not sure if you're doing okay with those starches you're consume, consuming or even a couple of the grains that might be lower in FP, but they're still giving you a problem. So I consider that a little bit more of a troubleshooting mode. But of course, if people want to eat more at that end of the spectrum, it's all good as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I did want to ask you about your thoughts on the carnivore diet. Hmm. Well, um, I think the people that are doing it, there's, there's a, you know, some groups and chat message boards and, and Facebook groups, people that are doing it, um, they seem to be doing well. They, for the most part, 
report um, feeling well. And then digestive issues seem to subside as well, which doesn't surprise me at all. Animal-based foods in the fast-track diet have zero points. We don't count fats and proteins. They're only carbohydrates make up the FP points. Um, so it would be considered technically a low FP diet. There are some animal fibers. Um, there are some things, you know, look at lactose and oligosaccharides in, in mother's milk. There's some carbs there. Um, uh, you know, certain uh, um, tendons and ligaments, you know, there's, there's, there are some fermentable, some fermentable material. You call it animal fiber in there, but we don't count those unless they're technically, um, you know, a plant-based carbohydrate. So I can see why it works. I guess the question and the reason I personally am not on a, on a carnivore diet and why I have an organic vegetable garden is because I still do believe a mixture of a, a plant, uh, some plant-based foods and animal-based foods as well as, you know, seafood and fish and shellfish um, with a lot of fats and, and a moderate amount of protein and not so many carbs to me and all of the reading I've done and, and also my own health, I think that's kind of a, a healthy diet mm-hmm. um, that I, that I advocate. Okay. Uh, I, we just don't have enough data for long-term um, carnivore dieting. Yeah. I mean, I think I just wonder with a lot of these diets, how much is symptom management versus like actually healing? Mm. Yes. Yes. You're asking good questions today. Yeah. Let's let's take that one. Um, last April, I was out in Seattle, and I, I presented at, at one of those conferences, for mostly for practitioners and, and doctors and so forth. But I really focused in on on um, some of these issues because I know I've heard that said a lot, with almost a dismissive wave. Oh yeah, diet. It's, yeah, it's good for good for your symptoms. That's about it. You're not going to heal. You're not going to better. It's not going to. It's not going to do anything for the underlying disease. Just for these symptoms, uh, it really bothered me because it just didn't make sense to me. Why? Why would something that was great for symptoms be just for the symptoms? What? What? What are these symptoms? And, and what are they doing? Just floating out there in space? Are they, they're being driven by something, aren't they? And so I started to look at some of these. Um, what are some of the basic things that we do know diet addresses in, in these functional GI issues? Gases come down, right? We know for certainty, methane, uh, well, hydrogen, methane, even though it's not as much data as I'd like to see, um, Hydrogen sulfide, again, not as much data as I'd like to see, but basically it makes sense because there is this food chain, bacteria ferment carbohydrates, and and some of them produce hydrogen, and then archaea organisms take the hydrogen and use it to reduce carbon dioxide to methane. So there's a feeding chain there. Sulfate-reducing bacteria take the hydrogen, and they use it to produce hydrogen sulfide. So it makes sense cutting the carbs is going to cut these gases down, right? And there's some good data about that, especially for hydrogen. Short-chain fatty acids, right? Those, we talked about those when we were talking about the pH studies. Bacteria produce a whole variety of these short-chain fatty acids, including, you know, butyrate, but also uh, lactate, acetate, propionate, and and others. Some branch-chain fatty acids. All these fatty acids are produced by bacteria. And uh, again, there's a whole worry that, well, are we starving? Uh, are we starving our gut bacteria? They're not making enough of these short chain fatty acids. And, and, uh, 
And is it bad for our gut? Well, it turns out that people with IBS produce too much of the gases, right? And, and again, IBS is just a good thing to use as an example because there's so many studies. People with IBS have too many of these gases, right? That's one thing. They have too many of these short chain fatty acids, even though that's not all, that always that easy to measure. One study looked at short chain fatty acids in the small intestine. They were fourfold increased in people with IBS and SIBO. Um, and there's some that even show in, in the large bowel and fecal material, the short chain fatty acids are increased. Too much gas, too much short chain fatty acids. And um, one more thing. Gases, short chain fatty acids. Oh, yeah. And changes to the microbiota itself, mm. right? People, you know, we didn't talk about the, the phyla of the bacteria. There's five or six or seven of these phyla, um, proteobacteria, um, Firmicutes, Bacteroidetes, um, uh, Archaea, um, uh, 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 what's the one that's in Archimensum with Cinephila is in, um, is in one of the other phyla, Fusobacteria. So there's a bunch of these groupings, phylum level groups. Underneath these are all of these different species of bacteria. But what's interesting is that 90 to 98% of the bacteria in our gut belongs to just two groups, Firmicutes and Bacteroidetes, right? And you can look, and there's some important bacteria in each of those groups, right? It's 90% or 98% of our bacteria must be some important groups. But what's interesting in IBS is they find there's a shift. Normal people have more bacteroidetes relative to Firmicutes. In IBS, it shifts. There's more Firmicutes relative to these bacteroidetes, right? So there's a shift in our microbiome, people that have IBS. So they have a shift in the microbiome. They have too much gas, and they have too many short-chain fatty acids. And so throughout the rest of my lecture, or part of the lecture, at least in the first part, I focus on, okay, we've identified three changes, not symptoms, changes that can be measured. What happens with diets that restrict carbohydrates? And so I had to look at all of these different studies and where I could, I'd find some that were low carb, some that were keto, some that were animal-based, some that were plant-based. So I looked at studies with all of these diets and tried to see what is the effect on the gases, the short-chain fatty acids in this ratio of Firmicutes to Bacteroidetes. And I found in every case, there were good examples of these things that are out of balance. The Firmicutes, a keto diet shifts that Firmicutes back to where there's a few more Bacteroidetes that's not symptoms. That's a change that you can measure. The gases come down. The short-chain fatty acids come down. So most people think we need more butyrate, more short-chain fatty acids, but people with IBS have too much. Mm. And a low-carb diet brings it back. So there's some really good examples that diets improve the situation and way beyond symptoms to really things that are underlying the symptoms. So, um, you know, of course, you can always do more and more and more research, but I think it's ridiculous to say that these diets are only impacting symptoms because that would, why would they do that if they didn't have any other effect on things under the symptoms? Mm -hmm. So I think because, I mean, I see this a lot, you know, people will go on a low carb diet and, you know, take their antimicrobials and do SIBO protocol. And then they're feeling great. They feel better. And then they start an add in, you know, a few more starches and yeah. they just blow up and it comes back. Yeah. Yeah. When we were talking about antibiotics, one of the things we didn't get into, which might be the biggest, you know, issue of all, 
they're not durable, right? Mm -hmm. It's not a durable response. Uh, maybe somebody will come up with a long-term study and prove me wrong on certain antibiotic protocols and say, oh, no, it is durable. Look what happened. Um, so far, it shows that it's not. That when you go off them, eventually it comes back. You've knocked down the microbes in your gut. Um, over time, the symptoms come back. If you didn't change anything else, if you didn't change things that underlie your problem. On the other hand, there is data showing that limits on fermentable carbohydrates is a durable response. Uh, there was one study on lactose intolerance that showed that if people just avoided, people with lactose intolerance avoided lactose, their symptoms were better. And they were better the next year and the next year and the next year, five years later, they were still better by just avoiding lactose. Uh, and there's studies like that, not quite out to five years, but the studies out over a year for fructose. So, as a proof of principle, it does look like restricting the food that these bacteria are gorging on mm -hmm. is a durable response. So once again, I just think the diet um, and throw in behaviors and practices, I think it just comes out on top as the first thing you should try. And you should make sure you're trying it in a compliant fashion. And if you look at the fast track diet and you read the book, so get the app, you know, if you're still having some symptoms, you really do need to look at how compliant am I being? Am I reading the troubleshooting sections? Am I trying some of the things you and I have talked about? And because it doesn't take many unabsorbed carbohydrates to drive a whole lot of gas. That's the problem. People, I don't think, realize how few carbohydrate grams can drive a whole bunch of gas, right? We talked about 30 grams, 10 liters of hydrogen. That's one ounce of unabsorbed carbs, 10 liters. It's a lot. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wasn't really talking about antibiotics. I was talking more like antimicrobial herbals. But so basically, are you saying that, are you okay. saying that there are people who just always are going to have to stay low carb? Because in that case, yeah. that's still managing the symptom because the bacteria is still there. You're just not feeding them versus getting rid of them with an herbal. Right. And, and the herbal, and I apologize for, for missing that, but and I really do see, you know, I worked on antibiotics for 10 years. Uh, to me, an antibiotic is an antibiotic, whether it comes from a chemist in the lab, whether it's isolated from fungi, whether it's isolated from bacteria, where we got most of them way back when, um, or whether it's produced by a plant or an herb. They're all antimicrobials. They all have a certain potency. They all have a certain spectrum of types of bacteria that they kill or inhibit. Some are cytal, some are static. Some just inhibit the growth, some kill them. But all of them, uh, and they have certain uh, you know, pharmacokinetics. They penetrate tissue well. Some will be better in the gut. Some will be better in tissue. They all have these different properties. But to me, it's still kind of the same thing. And so when you're using them to knock down gut populations, you're going to knock down some of the problematic ones. You're going to knock down some of the good ones. It, it just, they're not selective. It's the mm -hmm. bottom line. So the same thing applies, I think, to herbal. Even though you could say, well, herbals are in some plants that we eat anyway, so maybe having a slightly more of those would be okay. Maybe, you know, maybe it is okay. I just don't think we've had enough studies to really satisfy me that it would, should be something you try right at the beginning, I see it as a second, third, or fourth tier approach after all of these other things. Now, um, you asked another question, and that was, do you need to be on this kind of diet forever? And if you're not, you know, cured, 
then how can you say it's, it's not doing more than just treating symptoms? Um, and to answer that, let me use an analogy. Um, people with diabetes, right? Type one and type two, but let's just focus on type two for a minute. They, um, th- they have carbohydrate intolerance. Just like people with functional gut issues, we have carbohydrate intolerance, but because we're overfeeding our microbes and giving us all these symptoms. Diabetics have carbohydrate intolerance because it's raising their blood sugar and their cells are not as sensitive to insulin. And so the pancreas keeps making more and more and more insulin until finally the pancreas starts to wear out and they can't produce enough insulin to get this blood uh, glucose out of the bloodstream. And so that's when they develop diabetes, right? So what is one of the best treatments for that before it gets to that point, before you wear out your pancreas, right, is to cut your carbohydrates and lower your blood sugar. And then your liver starts producing the amount of blood sugar you need through gluconeogenesis in a very regulated way. It's the best thing you can do for diabetes. Are they cured? No. Type 1 diabetes, same thing. They're not cured, but they're controlling the condition. And it's not just the symptoms. They're controlling the, the amount of blood sugar. And it's the same with the, what I just described. You might not have, if you can get to your ultimate uh, root cause or causes and address those, that's, that's part of the approach in fast-track digestion and fast-track diet. If you can do that, yeah, you may get cured. For instance, somebody we talked about just has uh, lactose intolerance. You can either avoid lactose or take lactase, right? And so you have some options and you might be as good as cured um, if you're addressing that underlying cause. But when you're on a diet that limits fermentable material and you're using the behaviors and practices, and so you're having less fermentable material into your intestines, just like the low blood sugar thing in diabetes, you're not driving this increase in formicides over bacteroidetes, this type of bacterium balance, you're not producing too many short-chain fatty acids, and you're not producing too many intestinal gases. So it does go way beyond symptoms. Um, However, you probably will, in most cases, have to be somewhat diligent the rest of your life. However, the more you can keep things in balance, the more your villi and microvilli in your small intestine will heal, the more your enzymes will come back, your digestion should improve. Um, I've been eating this way for 15 years myself for for chronic acid reflux. And I, I am so tolerant to all these foods now. I can really go out and eat pretty much what I want um, within reason, two or three or even sometimes four days before I really start to get a return of symptoms. But I'm not cured. My digestion doesn't work like it does when I was 18. It will start to come back again. So cure is a tricky word, but how about uh, terribly good control? (laughs) Okay. I see. (laughs) I like that. Terribly good control. Um, So to wrap up, I was just wondering if you could give some, if you have any like further quick tips beyond like, you know, following what you suggest in the book and the diet for the three things, bloating, constipation, diarrhea. If there's any other specific mm-hmm. things um, mm. that you have to say about each of those. Yeah. So, you know, bloating and distension, that's mostly coming from gas. And so anything you can do to um, control that gas. And so using the, the three uh, pillar approach and fast track, I think is the, 
is the best thing you can do. Some people have good luck trying a little, uh, what is it called, semethicone for, for gas. Is that mm. how you pronounce that? Um, and that's really, a, is not much of a downside in terms of risk and side effects. So that's something people can try. Um, and the other one was diarrhea. So with, with diarrhea, um, first of all, if you have it more than a day or two, you know, you should be seeing your doctor because you've got this whole issue with loss of fluids and electrolytes. So it can be something that's serious if it's a serious um, GI infection. So, so you might talk to your doctor, but making sure you have clean drinking water, make sure you're replacing your electrolytes is always good. Um, what are some of the uh, probiotics that have been useful? Um, one is the uh, Saccharomyces uh, boulardii is used for sometimes infectious diarrhea and other forms of diarrhea. Uh, Lactobacillus GG is one that's, uh, there's some clinical data around that. And so for, for diarrhea, I think that's a good start. And, and just avoiding getting infected with pathogens, you might even get a test for C. diff if it turns out to be something chronic. Mm-hmm. So that um, with constipation, also, though, you want to stay hydrated for kind of other reasons. With diarrhea, you're, you're becoming dehydrated. With constipation, for people that are dehydrated, um, consuming more water does help. If you're already fully hydrated, you know, the constipation could be due to something else. But if there's a risk that you might not be, it's always good to drink a little extra water for constipation. Um, methane, we talked about methane and the connection to slowed motility and constipation. Uh, that's well established now. So you might get a, a lactulose hydrogen methane breath test to see what your methane levels are um, to see if that's a factor. Um, before you do anything, though, you might want to just check any medicines or supplements you're taking because you'd be surprised if you just Google those things, how many of them list constipation as a, as a possible GI side effect. So just looking at that kind of thing. Um, some people jump to taking fiber supplements for constipation, which I think for most people is, um, you know, a bit of a disaster. Uh, it, you know, there's all kinds of different fibers too. That's another thing. People talk about fiber is just kind of one thing. Well, there's all these different species from cellulose to hemicellulose and lignin, uh, you know, cellulose, lignin, a little less fermentable. Uh, but you have all the legume starches, uh, uh, legume fibers, stachyos, raffinose, verbiscose, um, you've got the uh, oligos, fructose, and lactose, oligosaccharide, kind of more of a fiber. Um, from, from fruits, you get a whole bunch of these fibers as well, uh, pectin and so forth. So there's many different types of fiber, but for the most part, um, fibers uh, kind of work against you when you have constipation. And one study done in 2012 showed that people on a no-fiber diet with constipation did much better than people on moderate or high levels. And there was a difference between six and a half days between bowel movements and, and every day for the people on a no fiber diet. So less fiber might be more helpful for some people. Um, and if they really wanted to dabble, they might just try a little kind of uh, green juice with some celery and cukes and just a little bit amount of, of kind of juiced uh, greens like that, maybe a little kale. If you wanted to dabble, it would be something to try. Um, well, you know, you'd be surprised that adding more fats sounds like something people wouldn't do or the doctors wouldn't recommend. 
uh, because there were a couple of really short-term teeny studies, a couple of days each of this whole idea that fats might slow or inhibit gastric emptying. So people would just shy away from fats altogether. But there was a study that showed that fat adaptation for two weeks actually increased the speed that food would go from the mouth to the end of the small intestine. So while it doesn't address constipation fully, it does suggest that fats might get things moving through the system a little faster. And if you really want to go back in history, there was a study um, by a woman in the late 20s that actually used a high-fat diet successfully for constipation. And that's... um, I could provide that no, that citation to you if you wanted, but yeah. Anyway, no, there's I've endless things to try, but those are some of the things that come to mind. Do you, by any chance, remember in that study about the people on the no fiber diet with their constipation improving? Do you remember what they were eating? Like, was uh, it a drink, or yeah. you know? Yeah, that's a good question, and I forget offhand if I was able to drill into it at that level. Yeah. I seem to recall I that I didn't, curious. but that, that data might be available. You, you might have to uh, get in touch with the authors or maybe there's another um, uh, document or attachment or something you can get with that data. I would think it would be available, but. Yeah, I'll have to look it up. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's a good I, question. Yeah, one thing I do want to ask is, like, what are your thoughts on a plant-based diet for SIBO? Hmm. It's more challenging for SIBO. Um, and, and by the way, I work with a lot of um, vegetarians and even some vegans um, because many times they are challenged because it's, that's where the fermentable material is coming from, right? Plants. Um, many people, though, maybe there's an adaptation. Many people can tolerate a plant-based diet in terms of GI health. And so I'm not coming down on vegetarians because many people are are absolutely fine. Um, But there is a lot of fermentable material. So it's not that uncommon that people trying a plant-based diet will, will become challenged and they have just too much going on. Um, But there are things you can do, right? Sprouted legumes, sprouted grains. They're in the new app, the much lower in, in points. Um, You know, people do lean on the Jasmine rice and the sushi rice, uh, nuts and, and lots of vegetables. You know, the, the mobile app, Fast Track Diet mobile app lists some 180 ve- either vegetables, herbs, or seaweeds, all of these different things. Most of those are pretty low in carbs and low in points, maybe 50 or so, a, a five or below. So there are some things to pick from on a plant-based diet. And then the other thing on a plant-based diet you need to really focus on is um, the behaviors and practices become even more important. And potentially some supplementation and a little more kind of deep diving into some underlying causes. Um, You know, maybe even a stool test and look at elastase levels, right? That's an indicator of pancreas health. And if they might, you know, benefit from a digestive enzyme. So there's plenty you can do, um, but it is a little more um, challenging than being on a mix or more towards an animal based or lower carb. Mm -hmm. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I just want to ask that because yeah. I know people are wondering. Good questions. <laughs> Thank you. Well, thanks for answering all of them. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think people are going to find this really interesting and definitely going to want to check out the app and the books. So, can you just let everyone know where they can find more from you, all of your outlets? Mm, sure. 
Um, two places that I would I would send people. One is digestivehealthinstitute.org. And uh, there's some blogs and some stuff on there, but they, if they go to the consultation page, there's several ways to get in touch with us, call or write and so forth. Another place I think people would, would benefit from greatly if they wanted to go see other people with similar conditions that are practicing um, uh, the fast track diet is the fast track, spelled T-R-A-C-T, fast track diet um, official Facebook group. And as I said, we have almost, uh, maybe we're up to 10,000 members right now. So um, very active page. I try to jump on there a little bit when I can here and there. Um, but it's, yeah, it's just, it's a great re- resource and a good resource for me too. I'm, I learn things from people I, I uh, talk to on the site, on the page and um, studies that are posted and so forth. So, Awesome. Well, thank you again. I really appreciate you taking the time and I can't wait for everyone to hear this. Ah, thank you. I appreciate the questions. Very good. Huge thank you to Dr. Robillard for coming on the podcast and sharing all of his knowledge and research. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you want to find more from Dr. Robillard, go ahead and head to digestivehealthinstitute.org. And from there, you can find his fast-tracked digestion books, the diet app, and his free ebook. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to spread the love, tell anyone who you think would benefit from this show about the episode, send it to them. And if you take a screenshot and share it on social media, make sure you tag me so that I can say a big thank you. If you are not already in our Facebook group, Wellness Realness Podcast Tribe, go ahead and search Facebook for that group, and I will go ahead and add you in, and then we can talk about the episodes, life, anything you want. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you have an awesome rest of your day, and I will chat with you again next time. Bye.